0: Hey everybody, this is your host, Matt Castellini, and welcome to Chicago Capital. Hey. Today's episode builds on last week's with another deep dive into consumer investing. We are joined by Ashley Hartman, who is a senior principal at Bluestein Ventures. Ashley performs a variety of mission-critical tasks for Bluestein, including the screening and due diligence on new investment opportunities, as well as assisting the firm's portfolio companies in their strategy formulation and execution. Ashley has a truly impressive background. She scaled a business across the country and also spent time as an economic analyst at NERA during the height of the financial crisis. She's actively involved in the Chicago community, where she serves on a number of boards and is a mentor at The Hatchery. Ashley received her MBA from Harvard and attended Williams College for her undergrad. As an editorial note, there were some technical difficulties related to the mixing of the audio for this episode, which is why my voice is going to sound lower in quality than it usually does. I sincerely apologize, this won't be an issue going forward. With all that said, I love this conversation and Ashley's perspective on product market fit and early stage investing, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Ashley, thank you so much for joining me on Chicago Capital. I really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Thanks for having me. Excited to be here.
0: I know when we last spoke, I had told you I was heading to get my second vaccine. I'm proud to say that I did receive it. And I also did bump Katy Perry the entire time home. So I feel like that's just living the dream right there.
1: Keep that motivation as you recover from all of your side effects.
0: (laughs) I feel like I've already told everybody in my personal life how bad these side effects are. And I've just come to realize, like, there are people who are just built different. You know, they're COVID tough, and I, I'm not one of those people. Like, thank God I never got this thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know. So your body's tricking you into thinking you have it. So now you know what you don't want to get. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. I'm very happy I followed all the procedures for the last year. That was probably a good idea. I'd love to just kick things off. You know, if you could walk listeners through your background and and your path to venture capital.
1: So taking it way back, I grew up in South Florida and went to college at Williams in uh, Williamstown, Massachusetts. When I was there, I studied political economy and I was always passionate about economics from an embarrassingly young age. And so I started my career in economic consulting at NERA, which is an economic consulting firm in New York, in their securities and finance practice where my clients were generally large banks. And so I started basically at the height of the financial crisis and ended up working on all of, nearly all of the legal cases that you would have read in the front page news, which was super exciting and gave me a great background, kind of like drinking from a fire hose with analytics and fire, in finance. And I really loved the rigor of the work there, and I loved my colleagues. But ultimately, I wasn't really passionate about working for big banks. And so, while I had a good skill set, I just didn't feel like I had the kind of broad based skill set that would be applicable to kind of working in a company. And so, I decided to go to business school, ended up going to Harvard Business School to shore up really my holistic business skills. And I knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. Both my parents were entrepreneurs, so I never really felt any pressure to take a well trodden path and wanted to prove to myself that I could grow and scale a business. And my passion's always been in consumer and food. So I interned and worked for a bit at Redbox in their new ventures unit. At the time, they were launching a ton of new kiosk-based businesses to kind of mitigate the decline in their core business with Redbox and Coinstar. But shortly after school, I had the opportunity to work for my family's company and help my dad grow and scale our business, which was Windows and Doors. Um, It was called Hartman Windows and Doors. And I was there for four years, and I really led our expansion plan. It was a completely wild ride. Uh, We grew exponentially, opened new product lines, new markets, and my purpose there was really to set the infrastructure for scale. And so really kind of loved proving to myself, which was my goal that I could kind of grow and scale that business. But I knew I wasn't going to take over the family business. And it was located in Florida. So I was traveling kind of every week. So I wanted to get back to my passion. And so I thought I'd just Use my skill set, join a startup in Chicago, which is where I was living, in the food sector. And so I started talking to VCs in the city, because they were just great portals to portfolio companies and startups. And I was talking to the Blue Steins for a bit and honestly just opportunistically started working together once I was ready to leave my family's company, because I was, there was like this little transition period where I was trying to figure out the best next step was and i joke and say i never left and they didn't kick me out and honestly i just i fell in love with venture and i never really had that in my mind to go do venture capital but i'm really grateful that i ended up here in a sector that i'm super passionate about and i think it's just a good lesson in being open minded and taking kind of your career as a journey instead of really having kind of a a set specific, you know, unveil in mind.
0: Few things to unpack there because that's such an interesting path. First off, on the topic of economics, as we you know talked about in the past, I also studied economics at Notre Dame. I was obsessed with economics ever since I was a senior in high school, and and for me, I loved it because at its core, it felt like it was the study of big problems, whether problems that face society or the economy, and and big, massive problems like unemployment, inflation, GDP growth. And I love sort of studying those problems and figuring out theoretical solutions. And I'm curious for you, did your time in economics give you any sort of heuristics or teachings? Do you you ever take any learnings from your time in economics or relate it in some way to what you're doing now in venture?
1: Yeah, for sure. And that's such an interesting question that I hadn't really thought about connecting economics to venture. But I think there are really interesting parallels. I mean, as an aside, I always love meeting a fellow economics nerd. <laughs> we're not, we're few and far between. If you asked me at like 16, what I wanted to do, I would have said that I wanted to be Alan Greenspan. So I was you know, <laughs> fully into economics. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's such a fun study. And I think there are so many parallels between the two when you're talking about kind of venture and economics. I think first there's really the analytics component where you have this limited incomplete data set and you have to use data to tell a story and studying political economy i could see how you could use economics to tell very different political stories and come up with different theories and policies which are really kind of what impact you know our society so you know applying that to early stage venture <laughs> we also have a very limited data set instead of you know facts on which to go on And you can interpret that data so differently, which is why you see some funds pass on an opportunity and you see some funds that are completely bullish on an opportunity. They're looking at the same facts. It's not like one's seeing something and the other one's not seeing it. It's just you're making up a different kind of story around that and a narrative and you see a future in a different way. And so I think the easy thing to do in kind of early stage venture is to pass because there really just isn't enough data. But we try to mine the data for signs of product market fit. And I think that's very similar in kind of venture to economics. And then I'd say the second parallel that I draw that's interesting is that economics and venture have this like combination of analytics and like maybe psychology or behavior component. So if we're all operating rationally, like we'd follow Adam Smith, but we know that that's not the case. And so there's a whole field that's developed of behavioral economics. And the same with venture, like their metrics and their goals, but then there's like this human component and operational excellence. And there's a lot behind just kind of viewing the data that needs to happen to make a company successful.
0: I love that. It's all, and it's always great to meet a fellow econ nerd. I, I always say that when I was at the library studying in college, whenever I took a break, I was either watching The Office on my computer, or I was watching Ben Bernanke testify in front of Congress. I, I just loved those videos for whatever weird reason. But I, I guess ju- this jumps a little ahead. But I, I love the comment you made about looking at consumer preferences and psychology. I know there's a lot of VCs out there that sort of look at the consumer space and say, it's, it's just too hard to get my head around consumer behavior. It's so finicky, it changes. It's hard to sort of anticipate what consumers are going to want in three to six to nine months from now, but but you're somebody who kind of, you said, always was interested in consumer. I, I'm curious why that is and why, you know, how you guys sort of manage that consumer risk.
1: Yeah, I think, so my, my passion for consumer stems from, I think, behavioral economics, to be honest. Like, I was, I've was, i always been interested in kind of how people behave. And I think consumer is a really good reflection of that because how you're behaving is how you're shopping, how you're making your choices. And then if you kind of go down to the micro level, food is something you interact with every day in and out. And so there's just like so much, so many interesting things to unpack with psychology and like how you pick up kind of that, that, that food that you eat every single day. And so when, when you're thinking about trends and consumer and how people are going to behave, I think there's a, you have to think about where is the market going and kind of, we have key trends that we're tracking. And then you have to think about, okay, well, what is the the brand or the product that they're going to pick up. And, and when we invest in companies, we want to invest in either category definers. So one example, we invested in Vive Organic, which is a two ounce wellness shot. And there was no shot category to analyze when we made that investment. We could see that coming, but we didn't really have a category to really in, invest in or, or really define as like a market size and so that was an example of something that we thought could be a, a category definer but looking at the trends of consumers are caring much more about the sugar they consume so a tw- 16 ounce juice bottle isn't really going to cut it they're they're trying to lower their sugar intake that's where two ounces comes in and then they're also looking at kind of how can I get functional benefits to what I'm consuming And so when you think about two ounce wellness shot, very low sugar, very low calories, but provides a functional punch. We saw that as kind of just an emerging category. And then the brand itself was led by a team that was just operationally excellent. And so there was just no way that the signs the signs were pointing to the fact that they were developing this really strong playbook. And I can kind of get into that another point. But like Just combining those two really gave us confidence that that was going to be, you know, a successful product and be able to define that category for the future. And then if sometimes we do invest in companies that aren't necessarily definers, but we think they can be category leaders. So looking for signs in their early traction that they're really, you know, in an emerging category going to kind of, you know, take the cake and be able to really push that forward and define growth.
0: And I guess backing up a little bit, I think we'd love to hear a bit more about Bluestein, you know, the genesis of the fund and all of the four buckets that you guys focus in. You know, I know you mentioned CPG and I think a little bit of next-gen commerce, but I think the we'd love to hear the full picture and the, the background.
1: Yes, let's take a step back to stay, take a step forward. To give you some background, so Bluestein is a family-backed venture capital fund. It was started in 2014 by Brian and Andrew Bluestein. They both have a long and storied career in consulting. Bram has a 35 plus year career across kind of senior leadership in consulting. And then Eileen Gordon is the matriarch of the family and she was the CEO and chairman of Ingredion, which is a Fortune 500 ingredient company. She was there for about 10 years and stepped down at the end of 2018. And so that's part of the tie-in to food. So we invest in food and invest across the value chain. So we look at the whole supply chain, both B2B and B2C. And the four key areas that we look at, specifically within the supply chain, is high-growth consumer brands. That's one area. Then there's next-gen commerce. So how do consumers get food in this new omnichannel world? The third category is digital technology that powers the industry, whether it's restaurant technology, logistics technology, supply chain technology. And then the last bucket we invest in is proprietary food tech. So that's heavy IP-based solutions that are you know what we like to call a true future of food, novel ingredients, you know, shelf life extension technologies, really kind of heavy proprietary technologies in that space. We invest early stage, so we go between seed and series A, and then like to be value add because we invest so early, so we like to help our portfolio companies as they scale. Our sweet spots really around go to market strategy, helping companies think through how they grow and scale their business.
0: And was that go to market picking that particular aspect, go to market strategy? what was sort of the theory behind that is that where you all sort of have the most common and experience from your previous, you know, endeavors so that's where you felt you could be the most value add or or how did that sort of develop as the fund was growing that you realized that this is sort of where you guys can specifically add a lot of value.
1: Yeah, so it definitely developed over time. I'd say it's a combination of a few things. First, Andrew and Bram have a background in consulting and that allowed you know, them to understand how really to help companies strategically. They had just like, you know, a really long standing background and had frameworks that they could apply from larger companies to smaller companies. And then the second reason was no one was really a thought partner to companies around strategy. A lot of VCs kind of t- key in on certain areas, whether it's HR, network, marketing, sales, ops, but no one was taking a step back and saying, okay, how can we help our companies think through strategy? And when you're in the early stage, you have really limited resources. And I mean, resources being time and capital, and you have to use those effectively and efficiently, or else you could literally fail. And so our our, our benefit is helping companies think through how do they, you know, deploy those resources in the right way so that they don't spend time and capital doing things that are just not value add for the business. And then the third reason we focus on GoToMark strategy is it's a really good way to get alignment. So we can better assess if we get alignment up front on like, how do we help you think through your strategy? We can then better assess how we can dive into key areas of the business. And so it's helpful to get alignment between us and the entrepreneur. And it's also helpful for the entrepreneur to take that and get alignment within the organization. And then we can kind of dive in.
0: I'm curious about... You know, I think one thing you guys have talked about in the past is, you know, the goal of a seed stage company is to get to product market fit. And, and that's such a core tenet, I think, of what you guys are trying to assist these companies with at the end of the day. But, you know, I'm curious as someone who's relatively new to the venture ecosystem and still going through business school, I product market fit is a term you just hear everywhere. And it's one of those things where it's it's hard to define it, but you know it when you see it. So maybe, you know, a tough question, but I guess for you guys, how do you define product market fit? What do you like to see from those seed stage companies, you know, as they're growing that lets you know, okay, like there are semblances here of some, you know, tangible product market fit?
1: Yeah. So definitely you're hitting on the fact that product market fit is like the holy grail. And it's hard to define, but you definitely know it when you see it. But I'll take a crack at trying to define it and I'll take a crack at kind of where how we define it internally. And it's so, so critical to kind of think through what product market fit means in the early stage, especially between kind of seed and series A, where we invest. So to us, it's a combination of three things. First, is there a significant market opportunity? Is this market opportunity winnable based on what you're offering, your value proposition? Second is, do you have an economically attractive growth engine to go, capitalize on this market opportunity that you've developed? Do you have a product that delivers superior value to customers? Do you have a strong organic and inorganic customer acquisition and retention plan? And then do you have importantly sustainable and scalable unit economics so that you can have like a strong ROI on the capital you're deploying? So that's the second bucket. And then the third bucket is do you have organizational excellence? Are you set up to actually be able to, you know, use a team and resources to go hit your playbook, your growth engine, and then capitalize on the market opportunity. Do you have an emerging A-team? Do you have core capabilities that are developing? And then do you have a plan to go, you know, scale your team in order to, you know, achieve your goals? So that's kind of how we broadly think about product market fit. And then, like, the beauty is if once you find product market fit, then growth capital, you can put that to work, right? Like you put capital in and you get an ROI and everything starts kind of flowing seamlessly but that messy middle is where we like to where we like to jump in and help
0: messy middle meaning you there are inklings of it and you see some early signs but by no means is it established and you think you guys can come in and provide that value that'll get them over the hump especially at the seed stage
1: exactly i mean we don't provide i will not say we don't you know we don't operate we don't you know that's up to the founder and like we don't we're not super <laughs> You know, we like to be a thought partner to help you think through, how do you take those seeds? How do you really, it's really about, for us, it's it's getting alignment around, okay, what, what does it look like today? Let's tell the product market fit story today, those components that I kind of mentioned. And then what are the questions we're trying to go answer? And I think the questions are more important almost than what's defined today, because that's where you're going to go spend your time. That's where you're going to go spend your resources and put your strategy toward um, to go answer those questions so you can flow that back into your strategy and then kind of get yourself into a great fly- flywheel to get to product market fit.
0: And how does that change once you're looking at Series A investments who might have already achieved product market fit? What, how does the heuristic sort of evolve at, at that stage where maybe they're more advanced? They've shown they've achieved some product market fit.
1: Yeah, I mean we generally so we, we we invest in Series A, but I'd say that Series A is closer to product market fit and I and you you're still always iterating on your strategy. So you're definitely looking more at like the metrics of like the unit economics they figured out, you know, what is their if you're looking at kind of a consumer brand, what is their velocity? Can you tell what kind of story can you tell from that? How does it go, you know, how do how do you expecting them to like expand and like what are the signs that prove that they they're close to product market fit but i'd say at series a you're still there's still some questions around kind of product market fit that you need to figure out i'd say probably series b is when you know you you plop the capital in and hopefully you know you just scale from there
0: curious about one term you used velocity with consumer brands just purely out of curiosity could you unpack that i've heard other sort of vcs use the term who who focus on consumer brands but is that sort of the flywheel of you know, customer acquisition and, and, and consu- you know consumption, how much they're buying, how many times a month, or how do you guys think about velocity?
1: Yeah, so velocity, good question, and thank you for making sure that I define the terms that I'm using. Sometimes you're just so in it. So velocity is what we think of uh, in when you're on a shelf at a retailer as a consumer brand, and it's how quickly you turn compared to the set. So if you're a beverage, that's how many units are you selling, you know, per store per week, and then you. It's great if you have your own metrics, but it's even better if you can compare that to you know, the set that you're in to see how you're performing, because that is going to determine... They're, they're really great signs in velocity, because A, it determines how well you're doing toward compared to your peers. That's going to determine whether you're going to stay on the shelf or not. It's also a great metric to use when you're trying to understand... How strong do we think this product market fit is going to be in the early stage? So, if you're in certain core retailers and you can assess that in a core region or set or particular retailer, then you can say, okay, well, how do we how do we think this is going to evolve over time, and will this actually be applicable to other retailers? And if you're performing really really well, then you can you know <laughs> hypothesize that that will translate to um, other retailers successfully. Not always, you know, if you're performing really well in, independent, in an independent store and you're at a high price point, doesn't necessarily mean you can go to Walmart, but it gives you good signs of how big this business can be.
0: A quote you guys have that I believe you have said this before is uh, it's easy or easier to get on the shelf. The real challenge comes getting off the shelf. Uh, I yes. love that mind frame. It's so, I've, I've never really heard a phrase that way, but I think that's such a great way to put it.
1: Yeah, I think that's kind of always my little uh, nugget that I pull out because a lot of brands get really excited when they get distribution. And don't get me wrong. You know, if you don't get on the shelf, you can't get off the shelf. Like, I get it. But that's almost the easier part. You know, how do you convince that consumer to pick you up and use you and keep using you? And how do you retain them over time? That's where your business is going to fly. Too often brands go really wide in distribution to start. And they'll go in every door that they are accepted in and they don't really know what works. They don't know why the consumer is picking them up. They don't know how to market to the consumer. They're dividing their marketing dollars really granularly because you're dividing it over such a wide net over many, many regions and like over many types of stores. And it's before you figure out what works, you know, it's, you should really be cautioned to expand too quickly. That's kind of always, always my advice.
0: You mentioned in your you know, product market fit explanation, this idea of sustainable, scalable unit economics. I think, I feel like in the last 10 years, that one tenet of, of product market fit has probably been thrown out the wayside by a lot of sort of startups and VCs on coasts that we won't name. Is that is that something that you guys sort of have seen develop in the market as well, especially since the genesis of Bluestein, where there's just less focus, especially at the early stage on those sustainable unit e- economics. And instead, it's it's grow, grow, grow at all costs.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think we're always focused on sustainability and a long-term mindset. I, I think part of it's like the Midwest in us. <laughs> we're Midwest investors, and we're just generally more conservative. And then I think it comes from kind of more the the operator's mindset, like, it's a safer bet, and you can have more flexibility to write your own destiny than being kind of one misstep away from crashing and burning. And the more capital you take on, the higher valuation, the higher expectation there is on this business in a very compressed time frame. So I'd rather companies, you know, focus on how do I get to a sustainable business than take a lot of capital potentially blow out before I have an opportunity to achieve product market fit. I think there's something to be said about taking capital once you think you have product market fit, then you know, you can grow fast and go quick. I think it's really in that early stage where you should be cautious and really understand the flywheel that causes your business to kind of, ex- well, yes, the flywheel that causes your business to kind of exist before you kind of go take large amounts of capital. But, you know, large companies have been built we're taking large amounts of capital. Like there's no, there's there's a place for that. And I just don't think we're that investor.
0: I am always curious about this question, especially as it pertains to people who focus on food tech and next-gen commerce. You know, 2020, I'm sure brought about tons of trends and, you know, evolved the buckets that you guys look at in meaningful ways. But for you, what were some of the most interesting trends that you saw in 2020 that you think are going to kind of, continue post covid whether it be in next gen commerce in you know in proprietary food tech space really curious
1: yeah <laughs> 2020 was definitely you know an existential event and the acceleration has been really <laughs> just crazy way beyond what i could have imagined on the next gen commerce side i mean if you just think about it like i think ubs reported if i remember the metrics correctly that grocery commerce penetration grew to 21% from 13% like the prior year and a small percent of change can have a ginormous impact in the industry. Like the U.S. grocery industry is like $900 billion. So a 1% shift means that there's like $9 billion up for sale. And so large dollar with small small changes like that. And then if you think of kind of DoorDash, now valued at you know $50 billion market cap on like $3 billion of revenue, like clearly we're at an inflection point. And so I think there are a couple of key trends that drove this acceleration, like obviously COVID accelerated digital, all of a sudden we were forced to change our behavior overnight. And I think once consumers are forced to change their behavior, a lot of initial behavior was just inertia. Like even a small example, like my parents never used grocery delivery before. It's not because they didn't like, they, they just didn't think about it. They, it was just inertia. Like they were just shopping in store and that was totally fine and it worked for them.
0: Did Instacart not cover Publix down there?
1: Yeah, exactly. It covered it. It covered all of the grocery stores. It's just you don't think about it. It's fine. I go to the store. I don't need to go anywhere else. And so then, when they got, you know, immediately everyone had to figure out Instacart. They had to figure out, you know, Amazon Prime. And you realize how easy that is. So once there's a trigger in consumer behavior, it really is long lasting. And so I think that trigger is here to stay. I think we're just at a new kind of floor. And then if you think about kind of on the traditional restaurant and grocery side, they were completely disrupted. So they were forced to figure out how to broaden their distribution channels. I mean, restaurants became, every restaurant became a ghost kitchen. A lot of restaurants became meal kit providers. And then they also became grocery stores. You know, a lot of restaurants in Chicago started offering, you know, goods. And so now they've learned how to broaden their channels. And then I think the second key piece of innovation that's happened is it's never been easier to start and grow a company. Take Shopify, Substack, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok—you name it—they've enabled creators, entrepreneurs, you know, restaurant providers, etc., to grow and monetize. And then you layer on top of that just acceleration in just tech development with like AI and machine learning that have allowed us to have, be better at like personalization. So there have been so many tech advancements across the supply chain that when you combine consumer demand and innovation, like I think those two things are t- together are just super super powerful and are you know going to continue to accelerate the industry at a pace I don't think we've seen before.
0: Yeah, I was I had a uh, Stephen Cook on from Chicago Ventures the other week, and we noted that it feels like. In years to come, everybody is going to have sort of a side hustle, a side business, you know, whether it be a CPG, you know, that they're selling off Amazon or Shopify or some kind of creator economy play. It's just never been easier to get something up and going. Gen Z is that sort of speaks to them and it really interests them in a way that maybe missed the millennial generation a little bit. I don't know. That's stuff that really interests me as well Is how I think everyone's going to ultimately have some kind of side hustle.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think content-driven commerce is here to stay and it's about how do you create your own brand, your own following? You know, there's just no one path to success right now. And I think that's exciting.
0: I think one on the topic of content driven, you know, commerce and and brand, a brand that I love that you guys were heavily involved with with is Factor. And congratulations on Factor, you know, getting acquired by HelloFresh back in the fall. That's really exciting, awesome for the ecosystem. I know that you guys have a close relationship with Factor. You led the Series A back in 2017. So clearly a great outcome. What kind of attracted you guys to Factor back in 2017? I have to imagine there was a lot of meal kit companies to choose from back then. I think that was sort of where the market was almost hitting peak saturation of meal kit companies. But I'm curious why, what drove you guys to conviction on Factor in particular?
1: Yeah. Glad you're giving them a shout out because they're kind of under the radar in Chicago. And it was an incredible outcome just going back to the sustainability point is because they've only raised, they only raised, you know, 12 million, I think, in primary capital. So it gave them a lot of flexibility on that exit. Gave a great return to shareholders, incredible return, but it also allowed them to kind of write their own destiny because they didn't raise a lot of capital. They got to profitability and they were able to, to expand without needing to kind of always move to that next fundraise. And so going back to kind of the investment decision, I think there were a few reasons why Factor jumped out. So the first reason was that, as you mentioned, meal kits were heating up. And Factor is actually a prepared meal, not a meal kit. So there's a difference between kind of meal kits and prepared meal. But the, the, the meal kits were helpful because they great, got a good halo effect around consumers really being comfortable receiving meals at home delivered to their door. So it gets you comfortable kind of food delivery, subscription based models. But as you think about meal kits, they don't actually solve the problem. The problem is convenience. What am I going to eat tonight? The meal kits get you part of the way there. They solve, I don't have to go to the store, I don't have to think about it, but then you still have to cook the meal. Whereas Factor comes to you and it's fully prepared, you can stick it into the oven or microwave and you're ready to go. And so that was kind of the the first piece was like, really, meal kits are helping the industry develop, but they don't actually solve the problem. The second piece is that there just weren't many companies in the prepared meal space to date, like when we started looking at Factor. There was like Freshly, which was kind of the the big Behemoth, But the market's huge. So we didn't think there was just one player that was going to win. And then if you look at factors metrics, there were really strong top line LTV metrics, because the price point of the meal was a bit higher. And they were getting customers who were super, super loyal, because they were targeting that kind of paleo ketogenic fitness customer at first as a niche, and they were able to kind of cross the mainstream cross to the mainstream from there. But it gave them just really powerful LTV metrics. So they were operating kind of a more premium space, but we felt that they could build a sustainable business on top of that. Because if you think about kind of the meal kit and prepared meal delivery space, like unit economics is key, but all that's driven from kind of like your LTV to CAC number.
0: I love that. I, I love how they approached it from finding that niche market and then trying to expand from there. And I think in general, that's a playbook that appears to work for CPG and for direct to consumer plays. You know, I think, I think of Catch and Co. as another great Chicago example, which has been mentioned many times in the show. But I mean, it bears repeating. I, I do really love when companies are able to find a niche and, and really speak to that consumer, develop the product around that consumer. And ultimately drive, like you said, a great LTV over time. I'm curious, is that something that really excites you as well when you're analyzing any consumer product brand? Or is it something that's sort of a nice to have and you'd rather see a larger just overall TAM at the end of the day?
1: No, I think we'd prefer owning your niche, having really high LTV with your niche. Because I think for us, it's always easier to go from that early adopter to the mainstream than from the mainstream then try to just try to capitalize on the mainstream, like out of the gate. So I think kind of finding who that customer is, is always the most important because it enables you to figure out, we've been talking about product market fit, but it enables you to kind of test out things and get that flywheel going in the early stage without, if you don't know who your customer is and you're just kind of trying to attract everybody, you're never really going to understand what drives your business.
0: Yeah, I think that's that makes total sense. And another under-the-radar Chicago company, which now doesn't appear, appear to be very under the radar because I feel like you're starting to see them everywhere, is Foxtrot. And again, I know a company you guys are involved with. It's a company that every one of my friends has said, what's Foxtrot? It looks really cool. Like, I kind of want to go check it out. I'm seeing more and more of them pop up. Could you explain to listeners and maybe some of my friends, <laughs> what is Foxtrot? What's kind of the value prop that it's offering consumers?
1: Yeah, so Foxtrot is such an awesome company, and yes, they they kind of just exploded. I think in the last like six months, they were a little under the radar, but have since uh, have since made their presence known. And so uh, I think Foxtrot is really about that true next gen commerce solution, and they have a full omnichannel approach, and they have a three hundred sixty degree approach to their customer because they have their in store, and then they have delivery that comes out of their store, and it all works together seamlessly. And so Foxtrot, you know, when we invested, our thesis around retail is how good can you make your four-wall metrics? And their four-wall metrics were stellar. And they stood on their own as like a retail store. And then you layer delivery on top of those stores and all their deliveries fulfilled out of like that core store in your neighborhood. It just gives you operating leverage on your fixed store costs. So you're able to kind of get that, you know, circular, I guess I've used flywheel a lot, but really that flywheel around kind of what makes a store sing. And it was really impressive that their revenue is fairly steady across day parts. So if you go into a Foxtrot, they have this amazing SKU set. They have a coffee bar, they have their core set of like goods, and they have just kind of a limited set of goods. So you know, it's the best of every single category of like emerging brands. They have also like a great kind of wine and selection and alcohol. And so they were getting really steady traffic across day part, morning, midday, and evening. And then they also have steady kind of split among categories. So it's the cafe where they have like their fresh coffee and prepared food, and then they have like their prepared food ready to go, and then they have their products. And so it's really difficult to do in retail and food service, kind of having that perfect mix. And I think... Foxtrot really nailed it with the differentiated brand and product set.
0: You know, I think you mentioned that they sell alcohol, spirits, and wine. So I know at least my friends are going to be more excited and definitely going to check it out because they really are popping up everywhere. It's really exciting. I remember seeing the first one Kind of where L's Pancake House used to be, right at the you know corner of Lincoln Park. I remember seeing it a few years ago, and I just thought, "What is this place? It looks it looks really cool." But yeah, I think I think it's be really exciting to see that company continue to grow, especially in the Chicagoland area. And on that note, any recent other Chicago based investments that you guys have made that you're really excited about?
1: Yes, we have quite a few in our roster of Chicago companies. We have so our. Our older investments are Factor, Foxtrot, Fork Heights, we're invested in Chowley and Pro V and local foods. So those are kind of like our past Chicago investments. And then recently we made an investment in a company called Biome Sense which is a microbiome uh, device and uh, database. And they're improving, they're using hardware to kind of improve the velocity around collecting microbiome data and using that to help figure out what discovery biomarkers and pharma you can kind of put on top of kind of what your microbiome is doing. The other recent company we invested in this quarter actually was Torch Logistics and their short haul brokerage
0: Do you guys look outside of the Midwest at all, or are you geo-agnostic? Do you have a particular focus or uh, preference for Midwestern deals, or, or how do you guys think about the geography of your investments?
1: We invest broadly across the nation, so we have no, you know, tie particularly to making investments in Chicago. Obviously, we love our city and we want to see the ecosystem grow. So, always happy to invest in companies in Chicago, but because we're so focused on food, we have to be pretty broad in our
0: geography. I think, though, lots of really exciting developments in Chicago food tech ecosystem. It feels like in the past couple of months, you know, you have talk getting bought by Squarespace, Tavala raising its Series C, Factor getting bought by HelloFresh. Is it safe to say that Chicago is sort of establishing itself as a real hub for the food tech space?
1: I mean, I would, I would say don't call it like a comeback. We were always here. Like, uh, we, I mean, if you think about like Chicago being a hub for food, it makes just total sense because we're in the center of the country and we have all this like infrastructure that's already here to develop on top of. So we have one of the largest distributors, Kahee, in our backyard, largest CPG companies, Pepsi, Kraft, Mondelez, Mars, Miller Coors, Largest natural broker, Presence Marketing. Largest, one of the largest kind of independent data companies, Spins. Largest food delivery, well, one of the largest food delivery platforms, Grubhub. Not to mention like all the logistics, you know, infrastructure we have. So I think all of this really works synergistically to make Chicago just like a great food hub. And it always has been. And then you've seen kind of this great innovation around kind of startups. And I think they've had talent to pull from from all of the all of these kind of large kind of infrastructure providers. In addition to one that you mentioned, there's Home Chef, RX Bar, Vital Proteins, Simple Mills, Farmers Fridge, all of these like exits and sizable rounds, I think are awesome because it's just a virtuous cycle where like talent fans out, creates opportunities for more innovation, and then just like creates this kind of feedback loop.
0: And I'm curious, you grew up in South Florida, you know, spent time on the East Coast, both in business school and undergrad. What drew you to Chicago? You know, why did you decide to kind of plant your roots here and begin your venture investing career in the Midwest, in Chicago?
1: Yeah, well, I love to be freezing all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in Chicago, I say, despite the weather.
0: That was the most honest answer I've ever had on this show.
1: (laughs) I love the city, I hate the weather. Um, (laughs) You will never, ever, ever... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that me to enjoy cold weather. So I came to Chicago. So I, my husband, my now husband, and I met in New York when we were working right out of college, and he's from Chicago. So that's kind of was my pull to Chicago. I, I say that I brought him here though because. We were trying to figure out where we wanted to go. He went to law school, I went to business school, and we wanted to be in a city. We need a walking city, both of us. And the only two cities we both liked were Chicago and New York. And he, I think he would have been happy to go back to New York, but I did my internship at Redbox and like fell in love with Chicago, and I just didn't want to leave. So I do love the city here. It's just it's it's amazing, just the network and everything you have that the city has to offer, which is like the same as. New York, if you're thinking kind of culturally, really connection to, you know, an international kind of diverse audience, but the like network here and collaboration is just unparalleled.
0: And since you got here, would you say, or how would you describe the startup community, the startup kind of ecosystem here in Chicago? Do you think it's grown since you've got here? And you know, what's kind of your prognosis for it, you know, looking out into the future?
1: yeah I think that it has grown exponentially. I think it's grown everywhere, but particularly in Chicago, especially in the food space when Andrew Bram and started investing in 2014, it was really a very underserved market like they were investing in 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 a pool where there was no competition to get into deals. let's put it that way and now i I think you've seen that changing, which is great, and I think that's just a fantastic boon for the city to keep having that innovation continue to just develop and develop. And as I mentioned, with kind of that flywheel effect and like feedback loop, you have more innovation, you have more companies developing here. It's just going to lead to more and more innovation over time.
0: And you're pretty involved, I feel like, in the ecosystem. I know you're a mentor at the Hatchery. You're a member of the board of the HBS Club of Chicago. Can you talk about some of your work that you do with these organizations and and what got you involved?
1: Yeah, sure. So on the Harvard Business School side, I actually joined and started working with them when I first came to Chicago because I didn't really have a network here. So I thought it would be fun to to develop my network. And I started working with Outmeier, who's now at Origin, to work on their new venture challenge. So every year they had kind of a new venture challenge where alumni would pitch to audiences for for winning kind of the prize. So planned that every year and got involved in the HBS club that way. And then in the hatchery, I serve as a mentor. And then we do periodically kind of our go-to-market strategy framework. We share that with the community and we do that with, with the hatchery. We've done that with kind of Relish Works, 1871, to name a few. Just to help build the ecosystem and provide, you know, our our help and resource where we can to help companies develop.
0: And in terms of development, a question that I kind of always like to ask because I'm sort of in the same boat. But when you first started in venture, what were those first six months like for you? What were some of the challenges you encountered, you know, starting this new career? I know you had tons of really helpful sort of operating and really relevant skill set that you could apply to looking at some of these early stage companies but just the process of moving from more of an operator to an investor what were some of the biggest challenges you thought you know you had to overcome
1: Yeah I mean I think that you have to take off for me it was taking off my operator's hat and putting on kind of an investor hat which took you know a little while to get comfortable with and so I think how do you really influence founders, and and help companies without being able to operate them day to day, I think is kind of one thing that you have to like think about as you're working with your portfolio companies, at least from my perspective. And then I think one of the things that I just, I guess, didn't quite realize was like the emotional roller coaster that you go on. So like, <laughs> as, a, as an entrepreneur, and I'm in a company, like, they always say like, the highs are high and the lows are low. And I know that from like, Growing and scaling my family's business, and I thought, like as an investor, you'd be able to kind of take a step back and maybe not be as emotionally involved. But you still get those kind of highs and lows in that emotional roller coaster, and you just have to be kind of comfortable with taking that risk. And I think coming from the operator side, I was I'm very comfortable with that because I just know that that's part of the journey. But you just uh, you feel that <laughs> quite dramatically from the venture side. So I think kind of those are a couple of things that I would say surprised me, and I had to get get my head around.
0: Well, you obviously did. I think you guys have an amazing sort of track record thus far. And I was so excited to get you on the show. I'd love to finish off with a couple more questions. Favorite Chicago restaurants. You are obviously involved with food tech. You're looking at food companies all the time. I would imagine there's a little bit of a foodie in you. So I have high expectations for some Chicago restaurant recommendations.
1: I'll try to live up to those high expectations. On the side, though, we are we love to explore new restaurants. That's like one of our key key activities that gets us like motivated. So huge explorer <laughs> of Chicago restaurants. I actually have, if anyone wants it, I have a list of 200 Chicago restaurants. Uh, I can send anyone the Excel file.
0: I mean, <laughs> yes, I'll- please.
1: I'll send you the Excel after. Um, okay. but if any, so if anyone wants my top recommendations, I'll name, I'll give a shout out to three. They're actually all in Logan Square, not by design, just because there's so many good restaurants in Logan Square. So I'd say Giant is our absolute favorite. Love, um, Jason, the chef there. And then I'll give a huge shout out to Daisy's as well and Lula Cafe, which is just like a staple and in institution. Love that. Yeah, we love supporting like independent chefs who are really just passionate about their craft. I think that's like the most important to us.
0: That's so interesting. I I spent four years in New York and I loved the food there. And I moved back here about a year ago during COVID and everything was locked down. So I have the restaurants that I kind of grew up going to and went to in college. But in terms of like real kind of like adult Places I have zero names right now, so I definitely will be needing that Excel file. Yeah, we're, um, we're heading
1: to the roaring twenty. So now twenty twenty one is your time to explore, and you just got the vaccine.
0: I did just get <laughs> My body is currently reminding me that I just had the vaccine. It's still not. It's okay. it's definitely still in me. Last question. You know, favorite podcasts, newsletters, thought leaders that you follow.
1: Yes, I am a huge podcast nerd, so I have so many <laughs> that I listen to. It's almost too many. So I'd say uh, lately my favorites have been podcasts acquired, which is just phenomenal. They go so deep; they're like three-hour episodes into kind of companies and and their kind of playbook. It's a great combination of just learning the history of a company and really understanding kind of strategy that got them to success. So that's one. Invest like the best is phenomenal. If you're interested in kind of consumer brands, Taste Radio has great interviews with like top emerging consumer brands. And then I also I always love like broadening my inputs with podcasts that aren't just directly related to venture or my industry. So I listen to a lot of you know, revisionist history or the long form podcast with key writers. So those are those are my podcast recommendations.
0: Awesome. Those are great. Those are some I haven't heard before. Our show notes for your episode is going to be like five pages long, I feel like we have a <laughs> lot of recommendations to put in there. Ashley, thank you so much. I really appreciated this. I had a blast and I can't wait to have you on again sometime in the future, maybe an in-person recording once this whole COVID mess is just finally behind us.
1: Thank you so, so much for having me. This was super fun and we'll have to go to a meal so I can introduce you to a restaurant.
0: All right, sounds perfect. That sounds delightful. (laughs) All right, Ashley, take care. Thanks so much. If you are a founder seeking venture capital investment at the pre-seed through Series A stage, check out Manifold Group, We're a venture holding company based in Chicago with offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and soon Atlantic Canada. We believe early stage private investments represent an excellent investment opportunity, but existing investment models in the space leave much to be desired. Manifold is a new model for growth in the new economy designed to create and capture value at the early stage through synergies across its venture fund, incubation and acceleration studio, and advisory firm. Learn more about Manifold at www.manifold.group. And please tune in for the next Chicago Capital episode.